Hello there. Thank you for joining the Naked Farmers podcast. My name is Sophie Love, and I do hope that you are enjoying these conversations with farmers as much as I am. If you are, please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you get your podcast from and spread the word. I'm so excited about today's conversation with the lovely Nissa Curran from Queensland. Hi Sophie, how's it going? Thanks so much for joining us here today, Nissa. Before we get into all your farming experience and expertise, that's a very unusual name, N-Y-S-S-A. Can you tell me where it came from? Mum got it from Doctor Who. So we only had the ABC until I was 12. Um, Mum started teaching around about then, got some extra money, so I actually put some money in and got a satellite TV. But up until then, we watched the ABC, which included a lot of BBC shows, and my dad was a Doctor Who fan. So Nissa was one of the assistants, I think, to the fourth and fifth doctor, and mum liked the name. And I'll be honest, I'm just glad I wasn't named Meg after dad's best sheepdog. Nissa is a fifth-generation farmer on a 38,000-acre cattle station at Julia Creek in Queensland, which is completely unimaginable to me. So I had to Google 38,000 acres to see what might be comparable. And to give you a sense of the scale, her family property is just a little bit smaller than the city of Glasgow in Scotland or Dubbo in regional New South Wales. And it is bigger than San Francisco, Dublin and Paris. It's really hard to wrap your head around. Can you paint me a picture of the landscape? So where I am now was originally the inland sea back when Australia was actually Gondwana land. So there's naturally no trees here and it's very flat. And I learnt what what horizontal was by the horizon because the horizon's very flat. So there's an introduced species of trees called prickly acacia, which was brought in from Africa or India. No one's, it sort of grows in both areas as a shade for sheep and for cattle. We have two blocks. So there's a block on the Flinders River, then there's there's a block on that's open savanna plains. So on that block, apart from a creek that runs through the front of the place where there's probably about 100 trees along there, if we didn't have prickly acacia, we'd have maybe two other trees on the entire 20,000 acres. And it's naturally like that because it was the inland sea. So it's just flat. And when you actually have a decent wet season, you can see green for as far as the eye can see and maybe the odd flower, and to me it's God's own country. Isn't prickly acacia what the giraffes eat in Africa? Maybe you need some giraffes up then. Well, actually I've, I've been through the savannah, uh, sorry, the Serengeti in Africa, and you see the giraffes and the elephants eating the prickly acacia, and, and it is a woody weed and it is a big issue uh, because it's getting quite thick in a lot of areas, so um, there is a lot of tension around it. I see it as something that if you already have it on the place, you've got to try and use it as a, see it as an asset. So a few years ago, by pushing it with bulldozers, we actually managed to keep about 800, 1,000 wieners alive for six months just on the leaf of prickly acacia. To us, we kind of see it as an asset. Um, we do try and control it so that we can still muster, but there are some places that are now sort of having to muster with helicopter because the, the trees are that thick. Pretty much every tree or shrub that was brought to Australia 
by admittedly well-meaning settlers are now noxious weeds causing endless problems for landholders and custodians. Here we battle privet and lantana. But shading for stock must be a huge issue in the heat of a Queensland summer. Are there any trees you can plant there? No, because other things need water. And the water here, the water table is a fair way down. Like our bore, the only water that we have on our on the on the savannah block is an artesian bore that, from memory, I think is about a mile deep. So, like, water's a fair way down. So, predominantly where the prickly acacia grew originally was actually along bore drains, because that's how how stock with water were out of bore drains. And they tell me when it was first brought in in the seventies that there's actually places where people have like um, barbed wire around it to try and protect the trees. <laughs> Because before here, before them, they, there was no shade for stock. And, you know, you it wasn't very nice for livestock because you know, we get up to you know, 48 degrees in the shade up here. So if there's no shade, it, it's quite hot. Well, that sounds a completely alien landscape to me. I'm surrounded by trees and hills and river. When you were travelling through Africa, did that landscape feel familiar to you? Did it feel like home? I was travelling through the Serengeti looking around at all the, all the grass and thinking to myself how many cattle I could run on the place. That's classic. But lions would probably have an impact on that. Lions and hyenas would probably, you know, increase your death rates. I'm a huge fan of giraffes and I have this dream of having them here. When we went to Dubbo Zoo, I asked if I could have one. And the answer was definitive no. Maybe there's a place for them in Queensland. Well, I was going to suggest to the Department of Ag that some giraffes and maybe some elephants would help control the prickly acacia, but we had an incident in Zambia where an elephant tried to get into the bar and I very quickly realised that they're really not cute and cuddly. They're actually terrifying animals. Luckily I was safe in the bar. What about bringing in camels to eat the prickly acacia because they don't mind um, woody weeds and thorns, do they? They do and there are some places that have introduced them but apparently they very quickly realise that Mitchell grass tastes a whole lot nicer than prickly acacia. Is it sheep country or cattle country, Nissa? What What is predominantly being grown and grazed on this flat land traditionally it's sheep country but traditionally Australia rode on the sheep's back so growing up we usually had sort of four to five thousand head of sheep um they had had a lot more than that but you know succession planning with my dad's generation they had to sell off a fair bit of the place um my great-grandfather when he bought the place the first wool check paid for it so it is traditionally sheep country and in my opinion it would be best managed with a range of sheep and cattle so that you could manage, you'd be able to manage the landscape, like the the grass is a lot better if you had both. Tell me about your forebears, the people who first purchased this land, where your family comes from. Uh, Well, my dad's family came in about the 1860s, 1870s, I think it was. They were Irish Catholics that came out. Uh, we were always told as kids that there was dubious ownership of a horse that meant that they had to leave. 
um, and they sort of settled in the Mount Morgan area around Rockhampton there. And we've been on the land since, like the Currens have been on the land since we got to Australia. When you say that there is a question around ownership of a horse, does that mean that your forebears came to Australia as convicts? They actually didn't. They were actually free settlers, which is disappointing because I actually worked for a bank in Edinburgh for a while and the consistent joke was, oh, you're Australian, you must be a convict. I went, well, actually, no, we left by choice. But, you know, ha-ha, we got the last laugh because when was the last time you saw the sun? You sent us to paradise. Scotland is extraordinarily beautiful, but it is not renowned for its sunny days. This is true. So tell me more about your forebears who came to claim this huge tract of Australia. Yeah, we were free settlers on all sides, so we actually had to pay our own way, except for my mum's, oh, sorry, my great great-grandfather through one of my mum's lines. He was actually a Swedish ship's engineer who apparently had a temper and had a disagreement with the ship's captain in Adelaide and stormed off the ship and then wasn't allowed back on. So he got left in Australia in about 1860s, I think it was, with literally what he was wearing and what was in his pockets. So he worked over the following two years and sort of worked slash walked his way from Adelaide up to around Toowoomba, Milmarin. So he was actually one of the founding settlers around Milmarin area, um, had 14 kids, apparently unrelated to three quarters of Milmarin and about half of Pittsworth because, you know, 14 kids are going <laughs> to... I still find out who I'm related to. Like there was a lady in town last, um, last year, the year before, they released a book about my great-great-grandfather and I found out after we told her that we were going down to it. And I you know, she'd lived up here for a few years and we found out we were actually related. We had the, the same mutual great-great-grandfather. Like when he, your great-great-grandfather has 14 kids, you're going to be related to a lot of people. How did your great-grandparents meet? So my dad's mother's father um, had started off with a bullock dray um, leaving Charters Towers um, and he worked around the Charters Towers, Pentland, sort of Hewenden area for many years um, and made his own way. He bought stations, did them up, sold them. Often he had actually already bought another one, so he had to sell that one to, to move on and he gradually built up um, and owned a number of stations. And it was his succession plan where the property that we're on now would be left predominantly to the daughters, which was my grandmother. So my grandfather was a station manager managing a large station to the north of us and he was getting tired of managing stations and so they you know bought the property off it, off their father and off my grandfather's father-in-law so dad's been here since he was about three so I think my great-grandfather bought it in the late to mid 40s to my understanding so we've been here ever since and as I said dad's been here since he was three and every generation's had to buy the place from the previous generation um, so it's been interesting times. What do you mean when you say that each generation had to buy it from the generation before? There's none of this. It goes automatically to the oldest son because it was my grandmother's inheritance. Like They didn't have to pay full price of the place from her father. Part of it was her inheritance. So, And then Dad had to buy it. From, Dad's one of eight. Dad had to buy the place from his siblings. Um, and Dad's always said the latest form of child abuse is leaving the station to the kids. So we've always known that it's not going to be left equally to the four of us. 
because good succession planning isn't equal because equal is not fair. So um, as to how that will play out in my generation, but every generation's had to buy it. So we appreciate it just that little bit more, in my opinion. Is it a blessing or is it a curse to have the weight of the responsibility of inheritance of such a large property? Well, it's not big for the district. It's sort of average size for the district. But to me, I feel that connection to country. Um, I can walk around here and know that my great-grandfather walked there and my grandfather walked there and my father walked there. To me, you, the best way to describe it is connection to country. Like I don't sleep as well anywhere in the world because I've tried as I do here on this station. It's where I've always wanted to be. Do you fear for the future that when your parents die you could potentially lose this sacred ground that feeds your soul? The brother and I that are most invested in the station that are the ones that have been working it for the last few years get along quite well because I came back, I'd been working in agribanking for 10 years and got a redundancy and I'll be honest, at the end of that 10 years with the bank, I wasn't in a great spot mentally. Um, it's huge amounts of pressure. It was the second year of the drought. Um, you know, there'd been deaths. There was a suicide a month after I finished. It was a huge amount of pressure. So I came home and I, I spoke to my brother and said, I'll stay until the drought ends to give you a hand. And he got the last laugh because the drought didn't end for quite some time and I'm still here and he's on a small farm down near Miles, um, you know, pretty close to Brisbane. He's leads a pretty good life down there. So I'm pretty sure he got the last laugh on that. But it took me a year or two of hard labour here to get my head straight again after the bank. Let's talk about that. You've got a degree in agribusiness and as you said, you spent over 10 years following the fickle fortunes of farmers' finances and that gives you a unique perspective into what I see as the inconceivable gambling that farmers undertake daily, weekly, monthly, seasonally, annually City people can become enraged when farmers receive drought or flood bailouts and they say if farmers can't make their business pay, they should give up. But farming isn't like any other business because Mother Nature can wipe you out overnight. So farming, there is a difference between farming and grazing, in my opinion. Farming is when you till the soil um, and you're solely reliant on whether you get that rainfall within that very short period of time. And, you know, I spent six months working in St George in a farming area and we had clients there that lost grain crops overnight due to hail. And it was just at the peak, the end of the GFC, so they hadn't, I can't remember whether the insurance company had gone bust during the GFC because that happened to a lot of people or whether they just couldn't afford the insurance on it because St George is sort of marginal farming country. But he lost that a million dollars due to no fault of his own like that's really hard to do in grazing and I think that six seven months that I spent in St George really pushed that home that farming is high risk and high reward and often you can't control so many of the factors that influence whether you get money or not and grazing is a little bit different and grazing up here is different to grazing in New South Wales and in New South Wales you can get rain at any time of the year up here we have a fairly distinct wet season so between October and, say, April is when we expect to get the majority of our rain. 
you'll usually start getting storms in October, November, and the wet season doesn't really start until sort of late January, early February. But you know by Easter, if you haven't received any rain, chances are you're not going to get any more rain. So you can make decisions. Whereas when you're in that New South Wales country where you could get rain the following week and it completely changes the picture as to your carrying capacity for the year. And to me, it's just heartbreaking for that country down there because I, like, I can't comprehend coming from up here, how do you make decisions when you could get rain next week legitimately? Grazing the cattle in the sheep markets are so different to like living in the city. Like, having worked in banking, you see a lot of farmers, graziers' wives who are from the city or from towns or are used to having that wage that every week, every you know, maybe every two weeks, once a month, you get paid and you know you're going to get paid. Whereas in grazing, you know, you may sell cattle two or three times a year. You know, you may sell more more regularly than that. But as an example, we recently sold cattle and we got around $1,000 a head for them. But if we'd sold them six weeks before, we would have been lucky to get $500 a head. So just that six weeks period doubled the income. Like that's just inconceivable in any other industry. It's such a gamble. I just saw a tweet uh, yesterday actually saying, someone saying they got a 1000 bucks for 200 kilo carbs, which just blew my mind. I mean, we're always watching the market trying to decide the right time to sell. Is this the top of the market? Should we wait? Will the market rise again? Is the market flooded? Will the sale be oversubscribed because the prices are high? Once you've rolled the dice and made the call, spent the time mustering and loaded them on a truck and got them to the yards, there's no bringing them back if the market doesn't meet your expectation. And we've all been in the horrific position where you've had to sell because of drought and made a pitiful amount And these are animals that you've loved and cared for and reared and are part of the extended family, part of the family of the farm. And that's heartbreaking. Ultimately, the money that comes home from the sale yards has an impact on every other decision made on farm. Very much so. And then there's other things like, you know, the 2011 live export debacle. And it it was exactly that. It was a debacle because it, arguably created a, a larger animal welfare issue than what they were trying to address. But that one decision by government at that point had the flow and effect of, no, I'm not going to defend what was happening in Indonesia. Cattle should not be treated like that. And I don't know a single grazier that wasn't horrified by the pictures that they saw. But they sold their stock in good faith. And that entire market was shut off overnight. And that didn't just impact those who sold to live export. That impacted impacted the entire cattle industry throughout Australia. And a lot of those northern farmers managed to hold on to their stock because they'd had a fairly decent season. And in 2012, they still managed to carry them over. They would have gone begging to the banks to sort of carry it a little bit further because, you know, you're better off, sometimes you're better off holding the stock on until you get better prices. And then 2013, we walked into a massive drought and all of a sudden all these cattle hit the market at the same time and the market plummeted. So normally if a drought starts to hit, you can sell the cattle and you can get decent prices for them, but that didn't happen in this drought. We got annihilated when we sold the cattle, so you don't have enough money to carry on and it's heartbreaking watching what's happened and carry through and then 
you know, we end up with the 2019 floods, which is just the cherry on the top of the crap 10 years that most of us have had. What strikes me in this particular situation that we are in right now, where an entire country has had to be shut down because of coronavirus, and the government is obviously on the back foot for the Conservative government that they are, having to compensate people and businesses left, right and centre in order to keep the economic wheels turning, albeit slowly. I've seen so much heartbreaking commentary from farmers saying, wouldn't it have been helpful if there was 1,500 a fortnight for us in the drought? Wouldn't it have been great if there was something like the $10,000 bushfire recovery grant for us when we were on our knees last year? Just something to take a little bit of the stress off our backs. And there was nothing. The live export ban is so complicated on so many levels. But what you are saying is that an entire industry was shut down overnight as a political decision after a television program. Was there any compensation, any mitigation for that? No. No, there was nothing. Yeah, and I was at the meeting with Joe Ludwig the senator who was the Minister for Agriculture at the time in Mount Isa, and he kept on saying, we'll reopen the market when the market can show that they can trace the, the stock all the way through. And you look at AACO who had their own cattle stations here, they had their own boats, they had their own slaughterhouses in Indonesia. They had a closed-loop supply chain and yet they were still cut off. And there's been talk of back backroom deals as to you know compensating for that, but there's nothing that I've ever seen. And yet there was no compensation to any grazier because arguably every every cattle grazier in Australia was impacted by that one decision. In terms of drought funding, maybe this is just to satisfy my own curiosity, and I'm not asking you personally, I'm asking you in your experience as an ag banker, have you actually seen funds flow into the bank accounts of drought-affected farmers? Not in the way that it was pre-Kevin Rudd. So pre-Kevin Rudd, there was a period there where if you were in a drought-declared area, the government would pay for 50% of your interest bill or $100,000, whichever was the lesser, which was a huge help. To, to so many graziers and to so many farmers throughout the country. But then Kevin Rudd came in, times were good, that, he must have, a few graziers must have upset him and he cut that off. So why hasn't that been reinstated by this Liberal National Coalition government? And why aren't the National Party, who say that they are the party representing the best interests of farmers, agitating for that, particularly in the horrific drought we've just experienced? Probably because I wouldn't get it through the Senate. Um, I was at a, 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 a Future Farmers Network function in Canberra a few years ago and Joel Fitzgibbon was talking at it and he raised the issues of how difficult politics is today 
and he said at that meeting that in his opinion in today's political climate and today's 24-hour news cycle that Paul Keating wouldn't be able to float the dollar with the way that the country is now run by which is the 24-hour news cycle Twitter you know you can't make decisions that are long-reaching because you'll get slammed overnight and you could get ousted the next day as prime minister it just makes politics so incredibly more difficult it's a detriment to the country with it being run this way but the current situation makes a lie out of that because what we have just seen is far-reaching decisions being made unilaterally we haven't seen legislation or action like this since julia gillard and the ndis and the Royal Commission into Institutional Childhood Sexual Abuse. Maybe that means that we need a crisis or a hung parliament to see real cooperation and change. And maybe the LNP have just been too sensitive to polls, making decisions based on this week's poll numbers. Say Labor was like that in the two, two rounds of, of parliament prior to that as well. It's probably ever since Kevin Rudd got in. That's when I trace it back to. From then, opinion polls dictated how the government was run. As you say, that's when social media started its ascendancy. We've all only had the internet in our pockets since 2007. You're right, we've all been making our opinions known, which didn't happen before social media took over our lives. This isn't meant to be a political podcast, but I find it endlessly fascinating to try and unravel why rural and regional people vote the way they do. I hope you find it interesting too. You said that when you left agribanking, your mental health wasn't good. And obviously you can't give specific examples. But I feel that it's really important to talk about the level of debt that farmers carry and the scale of the risk that they take in buying seed and the equipment required to put it in the ground, not knowing if it will rain, or buying stock or buying feed. And your experience means that you can explain to us that when Mother Nature plays the game, it can all balance out. But when she doesn't, the results can be tragic. So I guess it comes back to how a farmer will do their budget, or a farmer or grazier, we'll use farmer for the want of a better word, will do their budget for the year. And usually there's a certain amount of fixed expenses that they have to cover, and then you'll have some variable expenses in amongst that. So then on top of that, they then have to work out what income they've got potentially for the year. And that's generally how they do their budget. And then after that, they look at you know, when their interest is due, and then even after that, they start looking what their personal expenses are going to be for that year. And I've seen graziers who, you know, owe $7, 8000000 million and their personal drawings for the year would be about $24,000. And I've, I've sat at kitchen tables where people were, their budgets were only barely getting by and I've pointed out that they're only paying themselves, and like this is the husband and wife combined, $24,000 a year and that I didn't get out of bed for that amount of money and I didn't know anyone who would and yet that's what their operation was paying them. So that's when we started then having conversations around, you know, 
Is there a different way they could run their business? Is there a different way they could sell their cattle? Or do they need to look at reducing debts and getting back to a situation where, you know, they could actually live a life and not have their business run them? With any business structure, you have to factor in how much your time is worth. And that can be very hard. But I don't see that equation happening with farmers. And when I go to the fruit and veg shop and strawberries are a dollar a punnet, my brain explodes. How can that farmer possibly be making a living and a good living? Because we can guarantee that he works bloody hard, paying all his workers, mulching his strawberry plants, factoring in the packaging and the labeling and the freight and the refrigeration. How can he or she survive on that? if that is the price in the shops? The only way they can is from sheer scale. So that's why you're losing a lot of your smaller farmers because they can't make money because you've got the duopoly and they're having to borrow more money and buy other farms to try and get big enough that they can have the scale to sell sell enough to make enough money to make ends meet. I think we can all recognise that Australians are not paying enough for food. We're not paying a fair price for food. We're not paying a decent price for food. We're not valuing food as a society. And with this duopoly that keeps driving prices down, down, down and screwing farmers to the wall. Do you agree? I'd say it's probably actually world round. It's not just Australia that this is happening to. Increasingly with technology, the percentage of what your living wage is going towards food as opposed to like what your disposable income is to buy iPhones, laptops, go to the movies, is decreasing. And as we as a society progress, we're valuing our food even less except for those who suddenly want to be you know there are those niche markets with organic and vegan and all those sorts of things but as a whole we're just not valuing our food enough and that's world round not just Australia. I saw somewhere recently that 70 years ago 40% of household income was spent on food and it is now 9%. So while income is rising, we are placing less value on food and therefore on farmers. This will horrify most Australians, but I didn't have steak until I was 21. I grew up in the UK and meat was so expensive. We ate lots of homegrown veg and a few chops and a chicken once a week. Beef was beyond our budget most of the time. I was talking to a farmer when I lived in Edinburgh and we seen, talking to him, the numbers seemed to be about the same, but obviously the pound, like if, you know, if we were, say, selling at $3 a kilo, he was selling at about £3 a kilo. And I found when I was over there that the price of food was about the same amount as long as you were calculating it in pounds, not in dollars. So if you were earning a wage over there, it was about the same as the cost of living was about the same as if you were in Australia. But you had to be earning the wage over there. You couldn't be using Australian dollars over there because it was hugely expensive to us. Ultimately, the price 
the consumer pays is all due to the prevalence of supermarkets, isn't it? They are a very new phenomenon in our history and they've changed the culture of buying. Rather than going to the butcher, the baker, the fruiterer, the hardware once a week, now people treat the duopoly like their pantry and they're in there every day reaping the rewards of these ridiculous price wars. What still amazes me is when I was living in Edinburgh, I used to go to Iceland and I'd get, I think it was a kilo of New Zealand lamb chops for two pounds. And I, I used to live off about 10 quid a week because I, and I just la- lived on lamb chops and baked beans. Life was great. Far out. That is amazing, isn't it? And the poor British farmers, how can they compete with prices like that? I guess the global marketplace means that prices like that are possible and the supermarkets have access to a global market. So the prices have to be so competitive. It's very different from buying local and eating local. Nissa. Can you talk to us about your experience of farmers' finances in good times and bad? So farmers, in my experience, when things get tough, will react in one of three ways. They'll panic and do nothing. They'll panic and make really silly decisions. Or they'll settle in and they'll take each day as it comes and make a plan. And if that plan needs to be changed, they'll change the plan. And they're the ones that tend to come through it okay. But that's the reaction that, that people tend to have. And, yeah, there's a lot to be said about the some of the lending practices over the last uh, 15 years, I guess, where there's been an increase in this where you, where you only pay interest only. And that did come about by one particular bank entering the market who then took a large market share from, away from all the other banks by offering an interest-only product. So then the other banks had to change their procedures and their policies to allow for that because they didn't want to lose market share. And then you get to the situation where people are only ever paying interest only. And what that means is that when you run into a drought, if you can only pay you only just pay your interest when times are good, you run into a drought, there's not a lot of leeway. Let's talk specifics. What levels of debt might farmers have? What level of risk are they carrying? What sort of loans are we talking about for tractors, combine harvesters, augers, spray rigs, seed to plant, etc., etc.? Can you give us some idea of the scope of the gamble or the risk, please? Uh, So farming, I only spent seven months in farming country. You've got to be crazy to be a farmer. I honestly would prefer to put money on a racehorse because I've got a better chance of a return, in my opinion. Um, but So I can't really speak to that so much. But in grazing, I, when I was with the bank, I didn't have many customers that owed less than, say, $5 million. Like, admittedly, I was a senior manager. but And say if you're looking at a 5% interest rate, that's a quarter of a million dollars a year you're paying just on interest. Wow. So as an example, that means that you've got to sell at least 250 bullocks that year at a minimum 
and that's clear like that's getting a thousand dollars ahead after costs just to pay your interest bill it is my fondest hope that as well as the farmers who listen to this podcast um, to meet other farmers as it were that also people who eat food will come here to learn about how food is produced in Australia. So tell me, what is that level of debt for? So that depends. Oftentimes they've taken on that debt to buy another property. So the way the property market has moved now, it's near impossible to buy a property unless you already have one. But you've got to have another property to help pay the debt off of the property that you're buying. So gone are the days of my great grandfather's time where you could pay off the place with its first wool check. They're long, long gone. And I think that's where a lot of the issues. I know when Whitlam came into government in Australia, he brought in a whole heap of um, new laws and policies and whatever that changed the way that farming and farmers were treated. And it was almost this us and them mentality that was introduced then where the farmers and graziers were seen to be this landed gentry where we're all apparently really rich. I'd like to know where that money is um, if we are. And that's, you, you were saying earlier about, you know, the things that are being put in place now with the COVID crisis where people are getting their wages paid regardless. And that's hasn't happened in the agricultural industry at least since the 70s. You know, it, it certainly hasn't happened in my lifetime and, it's because we're seen to be these really rich people because, you know, and, and I understand it to a degree because when I say someone owes $5 million, most people in the city will, would never dream of seeing $5 million or, you know, ever owing that amount, like having the amount of equity so you could borrow that amount of money. It does seem like this really foreign idea, but as I said, I've seen people that had seven, $8 million in debt that were paying themselves $24,000 a year which is just insane. Now that property prices are so high in capital cities, maybe the perception of debt has changed, but that's an unimaginable amount of money to me. It seems that there is a misconception that if you own land, you are somehow rich, not realising that the bank may own most of it, and it's very easy to be asset rich and cash poor. That land has to somehow pay its way and that is back-breaking hard work of a kind that most people can't even begin to imagine. Potentially, I think a, a large part of the miscon misconceptions and miscommunication comes about because people don't seem to have um, country cousins anymore. You know, people, lives, life in the city is so busy. Like I have cousins that live in the, in the city that, you know, in Toowoomba or in Brisbane or whatnot, that haven't been out to the property since they were little kids. And, you know, their kids have certainly never been out here. So until it's something that you've seen and experienced yourself, it, it is very difficult to comprehend. When everything turns to shit for a farmer who has debt he can't sustain, and while I'm all about women in ag, in this instance, I do want to talk about male farmers and their mental health. You said they either shut up, shut down, they go to ground, or they make stupid, risky decisions. I'm married to an Aussie male, and this retreat to the cave mentality 
may be endemic in the species. <laughs> How do we change that? And as a banker, Nissa, what was your experience of that? I've sat at too many kitchen tables with grown men crying. All you can really do is try and be as compassionate as you could and try and the thing was you couldn't give advice because if the bank manager starts telling you how to run the place, they then actually become a ghost director and become individually partially liable for your debt. So it's a really touchy space to be in and all you can do is try and point them in the right directions to get the right help from people. Personally, I think banks actually need to take a lot more responsibility around the capacity of the people that they're lending the money to. I was taught when I first started in the bank that the three C's, and that was character, cash flow, collateral, in that order of importance. And that character needed to be based around, I think one of my bosses said at one point, if you wouldn't lend someone $50 at the pub on a Friday night and know that they'd give it back to you on the Monday when the bank opened, you shouldn't lend them the bank's money. But there's also within that character as to, you know, do they have the financial capability, the financial acumen to understand the level of debt that they're in? Like they may be very good cattlemen, but they may not understand that, yes, you need, the bank is an investor in your business. It's not just someone who's lent you some money. They're invested in you. So when they say you pay them interest, you know, either once a month, quarterly, half yearly, you need to pay that interest because that's their return on investment. So if you, and and too many times have I seen people come to me and say, I don't feel like selling cattle this month, I need to postpone my interest payment. And you go, well, the bank doesn't see that really well. That's The bank sees that as you completely disrespecting the fact that they've invested quite a lot of money in your your business. And yes, there are cases where, you know, it might be the right thing to hold off selling, but you still got to have that conversation and you can't just expect the bank to forego their interest because of a whim so a lot of it comes down around to that education levels of that financial acumen amongst farmers and you find in a lot more remote areas you know I'm one of four kids and all four of us have a university education like there's three degrees and a diploma amongst the four of us and that's incredibly rare in grazing families because predominantly once kids come back from boarding school they go back to work for the family place or they go somewhere else to work you know, my parents encouraged us to go get a piece of paper because life on the land is certainly no certainty. So we needed to have a fallback position in case everything went to crap. So all four of us have that university education, you know, specifically I have an agribusiness degree. So I have a, probably an increased level of understanding plus I've got 10 years of banking, whereas there's so many graziers out there who have never been away from their hometown, they've may never have even worked for anyone other than their dad before them, that the bank needs to take some responsibility for the people that they're lending to. They need to be sure that the people that they're lending all this money to can actually pay it back and actually understand what they're doing. You can't just go lending whole heaps of money out to people because you're going to get a bonus at the end of that year. Though that bonus is nice. I've received that bonus. I'm a first-generation farmer. So I have no idea whether my son will want to keep this place or whether he'll sell it as soon as we die and we're working this hard for nothing, really. And sometimes I look at generational farmers with uh, green eyes because they don't have the huge mortgage that I have. And other times I listen to their stress when things are going wrong And I hear that 
there's a burden inherent in this generational farm because that person doesn't want to be the one who loses it for future generations. That's an enormous weight to carry. It is to a degree. Um, Dad always said the adage, and it's an old well-known adage, the first generation makes it, second takes it, third breaks it. So there is, you're right, there is that added pressure put onto, especially to that third generation about they don't want to be the one that loses it. It's something, as you say, your forebears have worked hard for and I certainly don't want to be the generation that loses it either because I've seen my parents slog their guts out their entire lives and forego dresses and trips to town or holidays. You know, a holiday to us growing up was spending a few days in Townsville before we took my brothers back to boarding school. That was our holiday for the year and that would only happen every other year. As you said, a lot of ag families, the children don't get the opportunity to go to university. So how is it that in your family there was such a focus on further education and off-farm income and opportunities? Well, mum's a teacher by trade. So that's how she ended up in Julie Creek. She got transferred here. I think she upset the principal at a school in Toowoomba by having too short a skirt. So she got transferred out to Julia Creek. She promised her mother she'd only be here 16 months or so and that was over 50 years ago. So she's clearly a fibber. And teachers and nurses have been bringing new blood into rural areas for generations. So mum was a teacher and your dad was obviously equally convinced that you guys should all get a formal education to have other opportunities other than the land? Well, Dad's the third son in a generation where predominantly the stations went to the oldest kid. Dad was the last man standing. Everyone else sort of left or wanted to go off other places. And Dad had, when Mum and Dad met, Dad hadn't long returned from a tour of Vietnam. Dad's My dad's actually in Nasho. He was a national serviceman, so he got called up to duty and spent about 10 months in country. So when he came home, he hadn't long been home when he met mum. And being, I think there was something different in dad being the third son in that he'd never expected to get the place and he'd seen the ups and downs. And, you know, dad was the first of his family to complete senior. So he could always see that education was important. To me, an education is the one true equaliser, regardless of sex, gender or colour, you know, an education is, provides that equalisation between people. The Queensland floods of 2019 looked absolutely horrific from the media footage, but obviously you were there. So what was that like for you and your family? What did it feel like? What did it look like? What was that extraordinary experience like for you? So... The event was only 10 days. So for the first three days, we, I think we'd received about three inches the first day, maybe four the next, another three the following night. So the first three days, everyone was everyone was happy. It looked like the drought had broken. So I had tickets to the Keith Urban concert in Brisbane and they weren't cheap seats and I had an uncle in hospital in Townsville so that, and the doctors wanted to talk to family so I got flown out of the property and I ended up being getting back into Townsville the Sunday night that they closed the Townsville airport. 
that night. Um, so I end up getting stuck in Townsville. The big night in Townsville actually happened to be the big night out here. So in that 24-hour hour period out here, we received 13 inches of rain, which is about 325 millimetres, which is 30 centimetres of rain for every inch of ground, I think it works out to be. So it's quite a lot of water. And that night was also quite windy. And over the next few days, it continued to be windy to the point where choppers wouldn't fly. I know when they were trying to mobilise the army out of Townsville to come out and help, they couldn't cross the range, the Townsville range there for, for a day or so. So, you know, things are pretty bad when, a, when the army chopper can't fly around. And that's what killed most of the cattle was the exposure. There were some cattle that were washed away in the floodwaters. Other cattle just died of, of the cold. And mum and dad, uh, so it, it went from 40 degrees to about 14 degrees, back up to 40 degrees in a period of 10 days. So very quickly after and quicker than any other time I've ever seen, mum and dad could get to town to bring me out to, out to the station. And the one thing that I that just sticks with me is driving around and you'd see dead cows and they'd be wrapped around a calf. And that calf would be dead too, but that cow had given her life trying to save a calf. And that was just heart-wrenching. Dad's been through many floods in his time because, you know, he's old and he keeps on saying you can't compare one flood to the next because every one of them's different because rain falls in different places. So the 74 floods were sort of over a period of about three months. And there were people that were pulled off roofs in, during that flood because otherwise they would have drowned. So this one was a bit different in that we have better technology so we had better ideas as to where floodwaters were going to get to and we could tell people ahead of time that the water was coming, which they couldn't do in 74 because in 74 they all had party line telephones. And my mum was pregnant with my oldest brother during 74 and I think that she had one doctor's checkup when they managed to make their way down the paddock um, to hook up to the telephone line that was working wherever they got to so she could talk to a doctor. And that was her first pregnancy, which is just insane. But So it was different to 74. Um, there's some places it was better, a lot of places it was a whole lot worse. But the big thing was is that it was just over a period of 10 days. It was about half the, the rain of 74 but in a quarter of the time. So the water is just something that you'd, without having seen it is just difficult to comprehend and we got to our block on the other side of the Flinders about a week after the water went down and I still remember standing next to a tank that the week before there was water all around that tank and there wasn't you couldn't see any water and you know I was four or five kilometers from the river at that spot it's just incredible to 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 see the amount of water that went through and as I said unless you've actually been there and seeing it even then, it's still incredible. Like it's, you just can't comprehend it. I can't imagine the devastation of driving around and seeing so much dead stock. My heart really breaks for that. My experience last year in the drought was bad enough, quite frankly. But to have an act of nature wipe out so much is just devastating. It's hard for anyone who hasn't seen it to imagine just how destructive those enormous bodies of water are and a rip-roaring, raging flood with huge trees and logs and root balls all hurling themselves down the waterway 
I know you lost a lot of fencing. Can you tell me about the damage you sustained? So where our block on the Flinders is, is I don't know whether you've seen the flood maps. I've got some flood maps where they actually overlay the station lines on there. And you can actually see from that that where the Flinders narrows, it's pretty much right at our block and it spreads out pretty much straight afterwards. So that means that we actually got a whole lot of sand. So there's a, a paddock that we call the sand ridge that's about oh, six to 7,000 acres. And that entire paddock has between an extra foot to four foot of sand over the entire thing. And I didn't see it, but I was told by the neighbours when they did the fencing that there were sections of the boundary fence that were still standing. It was just under sand. Compared to nearly every single one of our neighbours, we lost nothing. Um, there was, a, I think we put up a, a brand new fencing about 10 to 15 kilometres. The rest we were able to re-stand up um, because the flood waters on, we, our place on the Flinders we know goes underwater. Like it's not unusual for our cattle yards to go underwater, even though they're two kilometres away from the river. So we sort of have that block set up so that the cattle are away from the water during the wet season. But um, I, and so like I was talking to one of our neighbours who was complaining about the um, fencing contractors that he'd had to take in to get to do all the work. And I sort of half laughed and went, well, what, don't you like fencing? Too lazy to do it yourself. And he just went, Nissa, I've got 120 kilometres to do. And I was, and he said that was just brand new fencing. It wasn't even fixing old fencing. And I sort of sat there and went, okay, I'll take my foot out of my mouth right now because <laughs> we lost nothing like that. How do you start again? I guess that's the eternal question for farmers. And obviously you have your own personal experience as well as your insight as a banker. How, having lost so much, do farmers pick themselves up and start again? Spend the money on fencing, on new stock, swallow their heartbreak. Sheer bloody-mindedness? Sheer grit and determination. Some call it heroic the, the government was really good with this flood um, and keep in mind that this is pre the election, a pre-election in an area that's used to being overlooked. I mean, like the 2009 floods, I don't want to try and compare to the 2019 floods, but a large part of this district was underwater in the 2009 floods and no one noticed because Victoria was on fire. And it looked like there was lots of life in Victoria and it was horrific, but no one noticed that a quarter of like, a quarter, maybe a third of Queensland was underwater. So we're used to being forgotten. And this was on such a large scale over such a huge area that graziers were anxious, they were terrified. Like There's no words to describe the sheer angst of ex nearly expecting of being forgotten again and trying to even consider how on earth you, re you rebuild from such a devastating event. And Scott Morrison, whether you love him or loathe him and whether you're cynical enough to believe that he used this area to help himself get re-elected, at the time, most of us thought that he wasn't going to be around for the next election, but he still came up. He was on the ground talking to people, going out. There's photos and videos of him at Gypsy Plains, North of Curry, where he's having to have a scarf over his nose because of the, the smell of the dead cattle was making people vomit. But he was there. He was talking to people. Whereas the opposition at the time had a photo shoot at the Cloncarry cattle yards and seemingly didn't want to go and actually talk to graziers. 
So, and that was what we were looking at of being our, our next parliament. So people were terrified of not being able to recover. And again, loving, loathing, we were trying not to be political. We got the $75,000 grant, which paid for our funding year. There's other things that have been put in place for loans to help try and rebuild, rebuild stock. There's a $400,000 grant where if you can match it, they'll give you $400,000 to buy, buy stock. So you can essentially buy $800,000 worth of stock for $400,000. So there's been measures put in place that I've never heard or, or dreamed of in my lifetime that are actually helping people rebuild. And without them, you wouldn't have anyone left up here. You'd have very few people. You and I have very different political views. In fact, I have very different political views to, I would say, the vast majority of farmers. And that's why I find these conversations so interesting because I learn why farmers vote the way they do for the National Party. I'm a latte-sipping liberal lefty, as Michael McCormack would have me tarred and feathered, probably. Which is very condescending, but yes. But those city dwellers that he so derides actually have a lot of anger towards regional and rural dwellers who keep voting for the Liberal National Coalition. And what you've given us during the course of this conversation is some really good, solid reasons why that is and why farmers feel heard and seen and acknowledged and nurtured by these parties. So the electorate that this happened in is just one federal seat. And it's been held by Bob Catter for the majority of my life. If it wasn't held by him, it was held by his father. And again, love him or loathe him, um, there's not many people in this electorate that have never had a conversation with Bob Catter. And, you know, my dad went to school with him, my siblings and I went to school with his kids. I think I'm the only one of the four of us that didn't actually have a Catter in my class. You know, he's at the opening of an envelope. Everybody knows him. And... Again, love him or loathe him, he genuinely tries to do the best thing for his electorate. And he's crazy like a fox, that man. And he's done, you know, arguably some really great things for the electorate. He is crazy. Like, I've, I've known Bob since I was a little girl. Like, he is crazy. But crazy like a fox. This isn't a rusted-on liberal area. This is a rusted-on cadaf area, which is possibly even more disturbing. As I said... Bob's crazy, but he can laugh at himself, so we like him for that. You're obviously a bit of a globe trotter. Apart from living in Edinburgh and travelling through Africa and the Serengeti, where have you been? What have you seen? What do you love apart from your corner of paradise up there in Queensland? So I've been around the world a couple of times, maybe. Seen, what's the song say? I've had delight. I've seen the sights. I've had delights on every foreign shore. So the only continent I haven't been to is Antarctica, which is on my bucket list. Um, I've travelled a bit through Asia. I've been to China, to India, to Nepal, 
did a you know the 14 day trip through Africa, been through Egypt, Europe, the US, South America. I went to a comedy show when I was in Edinburgh with Adam Hills and Jason Byrne. And Jason Byrne, the Irishman's going, "You Australians, why on earth do you leave Australia? Like it's paradise. Why do you leave?" And Adam Hills' response was, "You know, he'd had a bloke actually tell him the answer to that." And the Australians, we go out, we see the rest of the world, we realize it really is shit. Then we go home and we appreciate it just that little bit more. That's very funny, and it is also true. I drove from Las Vegas out to Los Angeles through the Painted Desert via the Grand Canyon and the whole way I was looking around me at how extraordinarily beautiful the landscape was and in the back of my mind going, yeah, and we have this in Australia. There's an incredible diversity of landscape and obviously flora and fauna here. Even though England is deep in my bones, Australia is home. You've got to have that Australian sense of humour because it is a dangerous place as well. My friend and I that I was travelling with um, decided to go to Spain for Easter break and we just, um, my friend was solely responsible for booking it all because I had a job at the time, so we went to Alicante and we... I still remember getting there because we'd been in the UK for about a oh, couple of months at that point and we always laughed at those Brits that came to Australia and we were out in the sun, loving the sun, and yet we got to Spain and suddenly it was, you know, 20 degrees and we were off with our coats and our jeans and we were in shorts and thongs and singlets going, oh, my God, the sun. And then we went down to the beach and it freaked the hell out of us because we walked down to the beach and there are no flags to swim between. There's no jellyfish nets. There's no lifeguards. And it took us a good half an hour to realise that there was nothing there that could kill us. I mean, there's no rips, no sharks, no crocs. I mean, why bother going to the beach if there's nothing there that can kill you? It just seems to spoil life, really. I know. I, I we, we started learning to surf last year as a family and I, I keep trying to explain to Australians that if you're from Europe, the place that you naturally swim is in the rip. I've been here for 30 years and I have always been swimming in rips because we look at the beach and we see all those nasty, big, horrible, scary waves and we see a nice sort of flatter area, and we go in the flatter area. And what I say that if you're coming on a plane from Europe, you should be given like a whole, like this should be a federal initiative, that you're given all the information that you need to know about RIPs because too many backpackers and, you know, and other visitors get lost and die in rips because they seem like because that's where they go to swim you know yeah it took us a, a, we eventually realized the only thing that was going to kill us was the cold of the water it was freezing so we got out of there pretty quick and just sat in this on the beach in the sun with the africans walking past wanting to sell us handbags and stuff it was it's just a different world how does it feel as an Australian, someone from such a young country, to immerse yourself in European culture and the 
extraordinary antiquity and the energy that's sort of steeped in the very stones. I've drunk in pubs in Edinburgh where you can legitimately imagine people standing around arguing over whether the world is round or not. Like to an Australian, like, yeah, we have some really old stuff. We've got incredibly old cave paintings and you know, other things, but we don't have buildings as such that have been around since before people realised the world was round. And, you know, I'm from very flat country. I don't understand how no, people didn't realise the world was round because if it wasn't round, I'd be able to see quite a long way. Yeah, it's a long way to a mountain range from where I'm from. So that was just fascinating. And I never saw myself as someone who would like going around art galleries. I was never particularly arty. And yet my friend and I went to the Louvre in Paris and we got there at opening time and I remember at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon we looked at our watches and went, holy crap, we haven't eaten and it, no wonder my feet are getting sore. Like, it's just fascinating to see the, you know, we went to the Mona Lisa and the Mona Lisa was pretty boring but on the wall behind her was a huge painting of like the Last Supper that took up an entire wall and I remember standing there for about 15, 20 minutes just looking at it going, how on earth do you even think about starting to paint that? Like where do you start? It is extraordinary when you stand in front of things that you've heard of or seen in books or seen in movies. So a friend of mine um, ended up nannying in Italy and I had always dreamed of going to Pompeii and there was a unit when I was doing School of the Air at home on the history of Rome and Pompeii and, and Mount Vesuvius nights and stuff and Luckily, there'd been a teacher in the local school who was actually Italian, and she showed me more pictures of like the, you know, the mother, the, the cast of the mother curled up around her baby, um, that that was there. And I'd always dreamed of going to Pompeii, and I told my friend that she wasn't allowed to go to Pompeii without me. So she told me that I had until March the following year to get there, and so I did. We went, we did a, um, a St. Paddy's Day in Ireland, and then went from train from Amsterdam down to to Italy and. I skipped around Pompeii. I was so excited to be there. I, I, wherever I went around the world, I would always send a postcard to my, my parents, my grandmother, and our next door neighbour who was like a grandmother to me. And I sent the postcard that I sent to the woman who's like a grandmother to me was of a mosaic from the brothel of Pompeii, which I killed myself laughing over as I was sitting there writing it. But while I was sitting there writing it in the lunchroom at Pompeii, there was a group of British school kids there. And I got talking to their, their teacher and these kids, it was nothing for them to jump on a plane and go to, to Pompeii. And I really got a little cranky because they weren't at all appreciating it. So I was telling this teacher about how I'd been schooled out on a cattle station and literally in the middle of nowhere and how I had dreamed of coming to this place since I was eight years old. And so she told me that she was going to tell the students on the way home, you know, of how far I had travelled to go there. And it was just, yeah, it was incredible. I loved Pompeii, just the history. And, you know, it's been around for well, probably near on 2,000 years now. And, it, yeah, it just blew my mind to actually be there. I was so excited. Let's talk about women in ag. It seems to be a real movement now, which is incredibly exciting. But it's hard to break the stereotype that only men are farmers, isn't it? Well, it is, and I remember my parents always tell the story of back in the 90s, a bank manager was coming out, they wanted to look at refinancing mum and dad, 
and dad was away and he said sure if you want to come out my wife will show you around the property and the bank manager actually said to him what would she know about the place and dad just went well she works alongside me as much as I do Nellie and from that moment there was no way in hell we were going to refinance to that bank you know I was when I actually got out into the wide world because I was raised that I if I worked as hard as a man I'd be treated equal to a man and that's how dad raised us there have been times where I've had to pull dad up and say dad I'm actually a daughter I'm not a son I can't physically do that and he would tell me to find a way when in doubt get a bigger hammer (laughs) Nissa how do you see your family's farming future and how are you adapting to future climate challenges? We've already started doing some trials. We're looking at expanding those trials of dryland farming because we're in a different zone to a lot of those farming areas where we know if we haven't had rain by a certain time of year, we're not going to get any more. So dryland farming should theoretically actually be safer up here because you're not going to put that crop in the ground until you know you have that certain soil moisture profile. And with zero-till farming, there are potentials for that. And it is increasingly starting to be tested up here. Um, So that is something that we'll look towards because it's getting to that point where you're going to have to take advantage of every drop of rain that you've got. Explain dryland farming to me. So dryland farming is essentially not irrigated. So you do soil tests I don't. I only know little bits about it. So essentially, you're planting a crop without any irrigation. So the crop grows from either in-crop rain or the soil moisture profile that's already in the soil. But dryland cropping, so no irrigation. What sort of soil profile do you have? It's mostly a, a clay-based black soil. So it's a very heavy clay. Going to be um, there's a cracking clay as well, which could be an issue. So there's going to be some trials and a lot of errors, and hopefully some success um, around how that works as to where the seed because we, we've got huge big cracks in the soil um, in dry times. Um, cracks that are so wide that you'd lose a foot down, like you'd lose a leg down the crack. So yeah, you sort of got to manage just how you manage the soil so that you can try and make sure that those cracks aren't there by the time you actually go to try the seed. As I say, it's, it'll be trial and error, um, so we'll, we're always looking at new, new and different little ways that we can try and make money. Now, we know that you're in Catter Country and you've explained the landscape to us. Talk to me about your local community and how connected you are to that, whether it be picnic races or... Um, committees or family fun days or rural shows or whatever? Well, every generation of the Currens have had racehorses of some form or another. So we've usually um, had racehorses going around somewhere different places. There's different picnic races around the place. There's even one that my grandfather actually helped start. So I'm also heavily involved with the Julie Creek Dirt and Dust Festival, which is a triathlon involved with horse racing and a bull ride, and it's a whole big festival, which has um, been cancelled this year due to the COVID crisis. But it's a huge, big event. I'm also heavily involved with QCWA. Um, so, yeah, I'm the treasurer of the QCWA division. 
I'm the treasurer of the Dirt Turf Club. I'm the treasurer of the Dirt and Dust. I've got to stop going to meetings. I thought I had to go to meetings to defend myself from positions, but apparently even if I go there, I still end up with the positions. Got to learn to say no. It's happened since I was at university. I remember being at a, in a cattleman's meeting at Gatton and the group literally went around, right, who does agribusiness, right, you're the treasurer. And then that's, it was just accepted. If you did agribusiness and you're a member of that club, you were the treasurer. If there were two of you, you had to flip a coin as to who got to be it. Where's your favourite spot on the station, the place where you can go and be and commune with your land? I don't really have that. I kind of just like driving around all of it. And I always kind of like the shearing shit. I always loved shearing time, possibly because it was the only time I ever got paid on the place by rouseabouting in the sheds. Nissa, it's been such a pleasure and delight to talk to you today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for spending time with us. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends. Follow the Naked Farmers on all the socials. We love to hear from you. We look forward to being back in your ears soon.